From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today's topic is resilience. While economic downturns are impossible to predict, it's never too early to start thinking about how to weather a future downturn whenever it comes. I'm joined today by Martin Hurt and Cindy Levy, two senior partners at McKinsey who've helped clients with this challenge and who drove our recent work on corporate resilience. We're meeting at our annual CFO forum where they shared their perspectives with global executives on how to build resilience for the future. Cindy and Martin, welcome. To start, can you describe for us what you mean when you use the word resilience in a corporate context? We think there is a business-as-usual mode of operation. Companies have a strategy process, a planning process, a set of routine management accountabilities. What we've also learned in recent years is that there is a crisis mode of operation when there is a full-blown crisis. But we believed strongly there was something in between. Uh, that there was a mode of action that companies and boards kick into or should kick into when there is a perceived heightened threat, either from the macroeconomy or from a regulatory development uh, or a societal development. And we thought in that situation, there needed to be a more intensity of decision-making, better transparency on downsides, and a playbook that they could actually execute to shore up some of the company's resources and capital. What sparked your work on this topic, and how did you structure the research? We had the hypothesis for quite some time that there was a lost percent of TRS by companies not embracing resilience and by not taking the right actions in the downturn. And we didn't see it as only playing defense, but we actually thought that if companies timed some of their resilience actions at the right moment, it put them in the position to play offense. So we embarked on some empirical research to actually prove that out. I think another factor that played a role was that we spent quite a bit of time with boards. And we see that boards and CEOs at times are not quite aligned on the strategy. The source of this misalignment is often not necessarily that there's disagreement about the strategy, but that the board has bigger concerns about risks and the accountability they have for the health of the company long-term, and therefore tends to be more conservative on some of the strategic decisions, especially when it gets to M&A. In turn, we found that companies we served on resilience had a much better connect between CEO and the board because the board felt more safe as there was more transparency about the risks, the potential impact on the company's economics and what the company was actually doing to mitigate those risks. Can you talk a little bit about the fact base that you leveraged to build your conclusions? Yeah, we uh, had a lot of debate on uh, what the right approach would be to actually get a sense for the economic impact that resilience could generate and uh, decided to go with our corporate performance database. So we have 12,000 companies in the database, listed companies, the 12,000 largest in the world. We took a subset of those that had representative data to actually analyze their performance through different cycles. One of the most notable insights we generated out of that was that it became clear that companies who are actually very resilient throughout economic downturns were the ones that moved early, that were already preparing for potential downturns or economic crisis well ahead of that point in time. But isn't this preparation just good business practice? How, how was what they were doing different related to this notion of resilience? 
We think there's something more than just good business practice, and that really is the question. Is this just good management, or is it something else? And, and we believe it is something else. We believe it is a mode of action, transparency, decision-making that is above and beyond just good business practice. So first and foremost, they just had superior insight into what would happen to their P&Ls, to their balance sheet, as the external disruption of any flavor, in this case a macroeconomic downturn might be imminent. And then they actually had a way of making decisions, some of which were actually quite counterintuitive. So as an example, resilient companies actually shed assets very early on, and they dipped in the early years below their peers in terms of revenue growth, which was quite a bold action to shore up earnings and to shore up profitability so that they could then scale up again coming out of the cycle. So that would be an example of quite a courageous action that in a normal business practice management teams might not necessarily embrace. And I think in a way that you asked the question, that gets actually to the point why companies tend to not take precautionary measures for being more resilient. Because of course, everybody wants to be prepared for a crisis. But the reality is that that action item, while very important, just never becomes the most urgent one and never makes it to the top of the list. So what the data suggests is that those companies who get themselves to make it a priority early on fare better. Can you talk about some of the other aspects of resilient companies that differentiated them from their less successful peers? One aspect that we're spending quite a bit of time on is uh, alongside, say, the balance sheet and P&L actions um, is also the mode of decision making. And it's the confluence between the actual actions and the way those decisions are, are taken. So in addition to companies moving faster to shed assets that might be less profitable and that might give them more operational headroom uh, during a downturn, they also took balance sheet actions. So they decreased their leverage. They also took cost actions. They were much more aggressive with their cost base uh, in the early years and in the later years uh, of a downturn cycle. And they did that quite consistently. So in every year, they outperformed their peers on taking cost actions and they kept going. You know, they didn't declare success too early on. And as a consequence, there was a decision-making regime that, that had kicked in that created that heightened sense of urgency and a much more forceful set of management actions during that period. So what we're very interested in is how did companies operate with their boards to actually make that pivot, to read those warning signs and to actually start to kick into a set of resilience actions. And we think there is something quite distinctive amongst resilient companies on the way they actually take decisions throughout that process. And let's just stay on that point for a moment, because that is where the whole question of whether the company changes their operating mode from business as usual to taking precautionary steps on resilience, it is all around decision making. And uh, very much the way that you just described it, we observe that the decision behavior changes, that the decisions are almost a little bit unnatural because many of these decisions are taken without a burning platform. It's an expectation of a burning platform, which is a very different thing. And one of the steps we found that uh, companies who successfully pivot early on in the crisis took is that they found a way to operationalize a different decision-making mode. Companies have different names for it, but many companies created something like a nerve center, a war room where all the information relevant to accelerating decision-making came together and was prepared for the management team, and in some cases also for the board, 
with the single purpose in mind to enable those decisions to be taken much faster. You spoke in your research about how we cannot predict the next downturn, but one of the things that you just talked about is how the resilience reacted more quickly and more forcefully to downturns as they happened. How did they know when to take the actions? What were some of the things they did differently to understand when they were at the beginning of a potential downturn and that it was time to kick in to some of this more rapid decision-making? It's an excellent question. What we think is happening is that some companies have just developed for themselves a superior analytical muscle, and they're just more externally oriented, and they truly understand the concentration risks within their own business models. We see a really wide variance of practice in the industry of some global companies not quite understanding that a downturn in one part of their operations will absolutely be correlated with another part of their operations and just seeing the full magnitude of the impact. And others are developing a bit more sophistication in looking outside at, say, macro or regulatory factors and truly understanding that potential impact. We often find a business-as-usual strategic planning process not quite adequate enough for that type of intelligence. Some companies have embraced scenario planning and, and what we would almost call stress testing practices a little bit similar to what financial services have developed, but they're able to have a slightly richer analytical perspective on the impact that certain external events will have on their economics. Just building on that, I think we're very much in the camp of not trying to predict the next crisis. It might actually be technically impossible to predict the next economic downturn, and we're certainly not predicting one right now. I think the point we're making is that when you ask the question about what is the right time? I think it is the time when the board and the management get concerned that something might happen. And rather than then waiting for it to happen, to act on it. Previously, you talked about how the resilience shed some assets early in the cycle. Could you tell us what they did differently on the other side of the cycle, the upturn? Were they acquiring more? And how did that tie into their growth and revenue as they came out of the downturn? It's actually quite fascinating and actually quite inspiring what resilience did on the upturn. Because on the one hand, they leaned forward and became more opportunity driven. So they did acquire more on the upturn and they picked up assets on the upturn. And they also took up the leverage on their balance sheets during that period of time to give themselves more of that balance sheet capacity. At the same time, they did not take their foot off the accelerator on productivity and cost. So they continued to go after those productivity gains year in, year out, even on the upturn. So it's quite an interesting mix of starting to become opportunity-driven in light of the crisis or whatever external event easing off, but at the same time staying very rigorous on productivity and cost. So that was a little bit of formula that, that took us by surprise. Let me maybe uh, come back to your question about timing. One of the fundamental issues, of course, is that when we are preparing for an economic downturn, we don't want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy that there's all of a sudden a negative mindset in the management team and people start taking the foot off the accelerator. So there's really a judgment as to what steps you take at what point in time and when you get the management team excited about taking resilience measures. One of the things we found is that there's a whole lot of things a very small group of people in the management team can do to enable the shift in decision-making mode, to enable the resilience motions when they're required before a broader set of people actually gets involved. 
when we talk about making yourself resilient, it's not just one set of big decisions. It's probably more a process that you get going to enable the company to move much more agile when things happen. And those steps you can take anytime. Since the last downturn, is it possible that companies are now simply operating more leanly and have much more limited capacity to make additional cuts? In other words, how do you think the options available to resilient companies have evolved since the last downturn and could differ in the future? I think it's an excellent question, and that's one of the big issues we feel could be different for the next downturn whenever it materializes. So we have heard from our clients, from CEOs, that they do not feel they have the same capacity for cuts going into this cycle as what their institutions might have had in the previous down cycle. So that's an issue because as you go into the next resilience exercise, where do you go? Uh, And in our view, the digital agenda is going to be much more prominent in, in this downturn. So what do you do with your digital initiatives to make sure that you push on those that are truly going to unlock the next productivity gain and perhaps curtail those that will not? And so digitally enabled actions that then drive productivity and choosing the right ones in this downturn will have much more of a role versus what we saw last time. What are some of the first steps that executives should take to operationalize this move to increased resilience? We believe that the global corporate world is missing a little bit of a vocabulary to actually declare themselves in resilience mode. And it might be that boards or management teams, when they perceive external threats, are able to say, we now need to go into a resilience cycle. And that could not align with any strategic planning process. It could be at any moment in time, and it could be precipitated by economic news or another development. And so the first and foremost issue is declaring yourself in resilience mode and actually having the management embrace a different set of decision processes, analytical processes, create a nerve center, and have a level of management and board engagement that's probably different than BAU. The next step after that is really this transparency. What could happen? What would be the impact on the balance sheet, on the P&L? And therefore, what is the playbook of actions that you could evaluate taking to actually create that greater firepower, whether it's on operating margins, on balance sheet, and on space to then actually be able to pursue those opportunities once the perceived uh, external shock is alleviating. And I think that point is a critical one and a very enlightening one for the leadership of any business to actually have a better understanding of what factors will potentially move, how will they impact your economics, and what can you do to mitigate them. We worked with a very large-scale real estate player in Asia-Pacific before the last economic crisis. And they went through that exercise of setting up the nerve center and having a very deep understanding of actions they could take to mitigate the risks that might hit them. After the crisis, they said it was probably what saved the company, that they had that level of clarity. But they also said two things that they regretted. One was they said that they only implemented about half of the actions that they thought they could do. Uh, They would have been even better off if they had done all of them. But secondly, that they missed the point about institutionalizing this type of assessment in the company so the management team and the board had access to that information at any given time. And I think that's where we see now the pivot that resilience players for the future could actually make 
where they move to a much more systematic way of doing this all the time. And it becomes simply part of the DNA of the company to be prepared. We're here at the 2019 Global CFO Forum. The theme of the forum is reinventing the CFO. So what are some of the implications specifically for a financial executive who's thinking about ways to prepare their company for some of these external jolts? Well, it's very natural that the CFO owns a big part of that agenda. Uh, The reason is that a lot of the nerve center type financial analysis are obviously uh, naturally placed in his or her area of responsibility. It's also very helpful to have somebody who has direct access to the single source of truth actually argue why and when certain moves and at what scale they might be recommended. So we do believe this is actually a great opportunity for CFOs to become more part of the direction setting of the company and play a critical role at very important junctures that uh, the company goes through. I would fully agree with that. I think the CFO is the very natural center of gravity for that really rigorous transparency and that link between external events and news and the financial performance of the company. I think the CFO is also the place to really understand the impact of a whole suite of potential resilience actions, whether they're on the balance sheet, on the cost line, on the portfolio. The, the CFO and team should actually be the, the center of gravity for all of those insights and for keeping that resilience playbook perhaps live. I think the other thing CFOs might need to embrace is to decouple perhaps a resilience way of working from some of their BAU financial processes and to make sure the company is not limited and not restricted by putting everything into a natural annual calendar. Because there might be moments where the CFO needs to really operate differently and to actually bring in different views that might not come through in a normal set of planning processes. And I think that would be another leadership role for the CFO is to just recognize perhaps some of the limitations of these BAU processes when you want to have that extra level of insight at a moment of resilience. And when we get to resilience interventions, a few of those are actually squarely in the space where CFOs are operating, which is the balance sheet cleanups, the divestitures, uh, the preparation of an M&A pipeline so that as we're coming out of a downturn, that can be activated. Uh, That's an opportunity for CFOs potentially to use the header of resilience to get a lot of the agenda items advanced that are close to their heart, but not many people in the company aside from them care about. So I think there's actually an opportunity also from a content point of view and the type of moves that the company makes where the CFO could uh, advance their agenda. So if you're a CFO here today and you accept the research on resilience that you've shared, what do you do as an executive tomorrow? What are some of the immediate steps you'd recommend that a finance executive take to help their company become more resilient? I would say a few things. Uh, I would actually create a bit of a resilience community around the organization so that there are a number of very high-performing executives with very different views that are ready to kick into a resilience war room should one be needed. That would be one construct that we believe could actually be quite uh, effective for companies is to have a team ready to come in and field a resilience war room with a diverse set of views on transparency on the external environment and on actions. I think the second is actually make sure that that transparency that continuous reflection on what is happening in the external environment and how it could impact the company is being logged and tracked at all times uh, so that you as the CFO might actually be the one that is going to trigger 
that look at a resilient set of actions because you have actually kept an eye on the external environment. And then the third would just be preparing your board to actually start a dialogue with the board that the company does want to operate from time to time in a different way to make faster decisions, to have a tighter alignment. It might mean that there needs to be a resilience governance that actually is quite different from the normal board governance where some board members take on an extra resilience uh, role in their non-exec capacity to work with the exec team during that period of time, and they should be ready to kick into that mode. Cindy, Martin, any final thoughts or words of inspiration you'd like to share before we end our discussion? I think as companies become more equipped and better grooved to actually operate at a moment of resilience, our sense is that that applies to any threat to resilience. And it could be a downturn. It could also be a regulatory shock. It could be something to do with an internal event, a major conduct event. So we actually feel that the construct and the type of decision-making, the objectivity, the governance, uh, you know, the look at the P&L and the balance sheet, and the, the ability to switch in and out of a BAU mode could actually apply to all forms of resilience. So we actually see it as an interesting new development, again, to have a mode of management that sits somewhere between BAU and crisis. Yeah, one of the most interesting aspects of work on the resilience topic I found is that it is actually very different from the business as usual. What's sort of curious is that when you go through it and you identify actions that you could potentially take, in the case of a downturn or a crisis. There is sometimes a little bit a step back where people say, well, that's actually a good thing to do, but maybe we should do it now already because that seems like a good thing to do under any circumstances. So work on resilience in some cases becomes a bit of an unlock for bigger moves on the current strategy than people would have envisioned otherwise. Cindy, Martin, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. For our listeners, a transcript of this podcast is available on mckinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, where you can also find links to previous episodes. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights in the future, we encourage you to sign up for our email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you join us at another podcast soon.